Again? I only get one good morning a service, is that it? No. Good morning, thank you. <laughs> we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are backing up a little bit. We're in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. I know the bulletin says we're going to go to verse 66. We're actually going only to verse 56. And so, uh, Matthew 27, verses 45 through 56. If you need a Bible, Charlie's got some in his hands. Just raise your hand and he'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. We are saving the resurrection for next week, which will be exciting. And so this this week we're going to look at the cross one more time and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. After the toilet's done making that noise. Let's go ahead and read the text. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. The title of my message this morning is The Work of the Cross. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this privilege that you give to us to be able to come together, gather as your church, open up your word, knowing, Holy Spirit, that you are here to teach us what it is you have for us to learn today. Thank you for how powerful your word, you use your word to change our lives, Lord, and to draw us closer to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would have your perfect will in our lives this morning, that you would bless our children as they are, as they are taught your word and ministered to downstairs, Lord, that they, even at a young age, would come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. We pray the same thing for anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, that they would come to know you and have their sin forgiven and be born again this morning. We thank you for our time. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we hear so much today from people who, you know, they want to take Christ out of Christmas. And you see it in retailers and you see it uh, all around. But it's really, it's impossible to take Christ out of Christmas. Because if they really wanted to do it right, well, here's what they'd have to do. First of all, you know, and they've done this, they have to take Christ out of the word Christmas. They, they couldn't say Merry Christmas. You know, that'd be the first thing they'd have to do. Anything that to do with Christ, they have to get out of the way. So they take his name out of the holiday. I mean, that's why we had Christmas in the first place. I mean, you know, so if we're going to take Christ out of Christmas, then the name of Christ has got to go. That leaves us with wishing a Merry Mass. Well, 
That really doesn't work either because the word Christmas was a combination of words Christ and Mass. And while the word Mass comes from the Latin Misa, which simply means to go, it was used in the religious service to uh, honor the Lord's birth. So then we're left with just Mary. Where does that leave us? Well, you know, you could, you know, instead of calling it Christmas, we can say Happy Holidays. Well, no, because holiday is simply the diminutive of the phrase holy day, so you can't really use holiday. You can call it winter fest. So, instead of a Christmas tree, we'll just have a festive tree. That means no nativity scene. And because angels are a real important part of the Christmas story, obviously, you know, that means no angels. And if you're taking out Christ out of Christmas, then you get rid of the angel from top of the tree. You know, that pesky angel man, he never gets right, he's got to go. So what do you put in this place? Put a star. Yeah, we'll put a star. What can it be any more non-religious than a star? It appears on flags all over the countries, all over the world. So we can put a star on the tree. Well, you know, can't really do that. Well, what? If we can put a, a little moon or a little Jupiter or having Saturn with his rings around it. That would be kind of cool. Actually, traditional people have insisted on placing the stars on their trees because of the Christmas story, because of the wise men that followed the star. Matthew 2, 2, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star as it arose and we've come to worship him. So, that leaves your tree without a top. Where did the Christmas tree come from? Well, it was Martin Luther former Catholic priest who became the father of the uh, Reformation, who started the tradition. According to the story, he noticed the starlit sky as he walked home on Christmas Eve, thinking about the birth of Christ in the year 1513. He, he liked the way the stars reflected off of the shining branches. And when he arrived home, he placed a small tree in his home and then he decorated with lighted candles. So anyway, you slice it. The Christmas tree points to Christ. Obviously a tree crucified. He was crucified. And so the tree's got to go. Well, so now you're left with Santa and the gifts in the corner. Okay, you know, well, that would be okay if you could, you know, leave Santa in the Christmas story. Everything, well, surely Santa is, he's commercial. You can leave Santa in the Christmas story. Well, the story of Santa is relatively new. I mean, as far as it, the last couple of years has kind of evolved to what it is now. But it actually goes back 1,700 years by the name of Nicholas, who was a bishop of the city of Myra. And during the Roman persecution of the Christians, he was in prison and wasn't released until the so-called conversion of Emperor, uh, Emperor Constantine. Legend tells us because of his love for the Lord, he took gifts to the children of poor families and would deliver them by dropping them through the chimneys. One story tells us of how Nicholas had heard of a family with three daughters who couldn't marry because they had no dowry. And so Nicholas snuck into their home and left gold coins in the socks the girls had left hanging on the mantle to dry. After his death, the Catholic Church, as they do, they pronounce him saint. But that's where you get Saint Nicholas or Saint Nick as a part of the celebration. So Santa's got to go. So what's left? Well, at least we have the gifts, right? We can just bring the gifts in, put the gifts in the corner, wrap them up all pretty with bows on it, gifts, no religious connection at all, and put them in the corner of the living room where the tree used to be. Not so fast. Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 tells us some wise men, when they saw the star... They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Even though the gifts weren't practical, they were significant. 
Gold is the gift of kings, and Jesus was the king of kings there in that cradle. Frankincense was a type of incense used in, in, a, in the temple to worship the Lord. Leviticus priests would, would use that in the worship of the Lord. So this was a gift for a priest who would open up the way for God to, the, for, to God for the people. The third is myrrh, which was mixed with alloys by the Jews to embalm their dead. It was prepared for Jesus, who would die for our sins. So these gifts were brought to the, uh, the, the one who would be king, priest, and who would die for the world. Now, one of those gifts uh, would have been sufficient to fully describe who Christ was. Instead, it took all three. But if you're going to remove Christ from Christmas, the gifts have got to go. they got to go. So what do we have left? Well, we've taken away the name Christmas, the angels, the stars, the trees. We've got rid of Stan and all the gifts. It's going to be a pretty boring Winterfest morning. Well, you think, we can always sing. We'll still sing. Well, you can't sing Away in the Manger. You can't sing the First Noel, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Joy to the World. You can't sing any of those. If you're serious about taking Christ out of Christmas, all the songs you will have left will be about reindeer and snowmen. And if you're going to sing about Frosty, well, you can't because you wouldn't be able to pretend that he's Parson Brown. Parson Brown means he's Pastor Brown and you wouldn't want to have that tied into there because it, and, and certainly you can't sing about reindeer without Santa and Santa's out. So here's the problem. Here's my point. Christmas is all about Jesus. It's all about the birth of Christ. It's all about Jesus coming into this world and giving his life for ours. Taking Christ out of Christmas is like trying to take heat out of fire or wet out of water or oxygen out of air or notes out of music. You can't separate Christ from Christmas. And in the same way, you cannot separate the birth of Christ from his death on the cross and his resurrection. Though people will try to deny what Jesus accomplished on the cross, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus was born into this world to die on the cross to save mankind from their sin. I think it's so appropriate that at Christmas time, we are in this part of the Gospel of Matthew of Christ's death and resurrection. I think we started a year and a half ago in in June, and and we made it all the way, and it's ending up right at Christmas time of his death and his resurrection. That's something we would normally look at Easter. Because the greatest event in the history of mankind was not just the birth of Jesus Christ, but also his death and resurrection. And you can't separate the three of them. This time of year we celebrate God becoming man in human flesh. And we've been looking at the God-man as presented to us as the King of Israel in the book of Matthew. He could heal the sick. He could cleanse the leper. He spoke as no one spoke before. We saw him walk on the water. We saw him calm the storm, multiply the bread, feed the multitudes. We saw his love and grace and mercy and compassion. And even last week, we looked at graphically uh, seeing Jesus' death upon the cross, giving his life to die for us. So what I want to do this morning, if you're a note taker, is spend one more uh, week to look at the cross and to really focus what Jesus did by dying on the cross. And then next week, as I said, we'll do the resurrection. But if you're taking notes, I want to divide our study into three simple words to describe the work of the cross. Number one, vicariously. Number two, voluntarily. Number three, victoriously. Now, in no way do those simple words cover all that was involved in the the death of Jesus Christ. But I do believe that looking at these things, it will help us to set our hearts upon Him and to set our affection upon Him and to put Christ back into Christmas. Let's first look at the first word, if you're taking notes, vicariously. 
interesting word. Webster defines this as performed or suffered by one person as a substitute for another or to benefit or advantage of another. Why did Jesus die upon the cross while his death was vicarious? He died vicariously. By that, we mean that he took our place. We sometimes refer to this as the substitutionary death of Christ. But theologically, we can use the word vicarious because that's exactly what the death of Christ was. Him taking our place. Him substituting his life in our stead. Now look at verse 45 and 46 of Matthew 27. We read, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon. That means that Jesus has been on the cross, actually, from, for six hours. He was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. It's now 3 in the afternoon, and Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I know we looked at this briefly last week, but I want to point out that this verse one more time because I believe it's one of the most mysterious things of the last seven things that Jesus said on the cross as he hung there. And it's an amazing verse and that the idea that Christ would become sin and that for that brief moment, somehow, some way, mysteriously, they would be a, there would be a separation between him and the Father. Now there are those who say, well, he, he only felt forsaken. I don't believe that. There are those who say, well, he's just quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, and it just came to his mind, and that's all he was doing, and that the Father hadn't really forsaken him. Yes, he's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, but I believe there's a reality there that's taking place whereby the Father and the Son, for a moment, are in a sense, and I use the word in a sense, separated. And, and I have to believe that for this moment, Jesus Christ has become the vicarious sacrifice for our sins. Second Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I like the way one pastor puts it. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if He had lived your life so He could treat you as if you had lived His life. What a bargain. You know, this time of year, there's a lot of shopping going on. And, and I'm seeing this on my, my emails that I get. Because whenever there's an order placed on Amazon, I get the email that says an order was placed. And I'm looking at my email and it's baby clothes, baby clothes, baby clothes, baby toy, baby toy. Say, Lisa, Lucy, what you done up to, Lucy? And, uh, and, uh, it's all these receipts from, from Amazon.com and, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of shopping going on. I said, just let me know how much you're spending, babe. You know, you give a, a week's worth of salary to the store, and they give you back in the form of merchandise about five minutes worth of, of your salary. <laughs> but there's a, a transaction that's taking place, usually not a very profitable one unless you can, you know, find a deal. But in the same way, there was a, a, a transaction that had happened whereby our sins were placed upon the pure and holy Son of God. And because the Father cannot look, behold iniquity or sin, there's a relationship here that is seemingly broken. The father turns his back on the son. And the son replies, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't understand it. I don't claim to understand it. Because I said that there's a mysteriousness in there that we can't fathom this side of eternity. But I do believe that Jesus was forsaken by the father so that you and I would never have to be forsaken. 
I believe that as Christians you can rest assured that God's word is true. The Lord promises us to never, no never, leave us or forsake us. Jesus was forsaken upon that cross because our sins were placed upon Him. And now, if we would put our faith in Him and trust in Him, He will impute His righteousness to us. Jesus took the beatings, the stripes on His back, the Bible says, so that we may be healed. By His stripes, we are healed. They placed on Jesus this purple robe in the same way Jesus takes our sin and gives us a robe of righteousness. Jesus wore the crown of thorns, the thorn, the sign of the curse, and He took your curse and and my curse so that we could wear the crown of glory, so that we could wear the crown of life. They put a scepter in His hand and they mocked Him, saying, Hell, King of the Jews, but little did they realize that He is the King of the universe. And those very hands, Isaiah 40, 12 tells us, that have flung the stars into space. Those very hands at that very moment with those spikes driven through were holding those stars together. In fact, holding the whole universe together. We're told in Hebrews 1.10, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Those were the hands that created the very thorns on his head. And those were the hands that created the very trees that the cross was made of on the hill on which it stood. In fact, someone said he hung upon a cross of wood, but he made the hill on which it stood. What an awesome thought that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I think again, we looked at this last week, Abraham offering up his son Isaac. That before he was about to plunge that knife into his son, God stopped him, said stop. And said there's a ram caught in this in the bushes over there. Take the ram and put it to death instead in, in place of his son. That's vicarious atonement instead of the substitution of the ram for the son. But God did not spare his son. He plunged the knife into his son, so to speak, upon the cross. And it was our vicarious, our substitution and the atoning sacrifice on the cross for us. You know, when Jesus spoke from the cross, he spoke seven times. And one of those utterances towards the end of the crucifixion was the words, It is finished. Actually, in the Greek, it's just one word, to die, And we were translated in English, paid in full. So what Jesus Christ was doing upon the cross was paying in full for man's sin. Jesus died to satisfy the demands of a holy God, the righteous holy law that had been violated. That's what's called propitiation. The death of Christ Godward. Not only did Jesus die for sinners, but he died for the Father to satisfy the law that was broken. And so when he cried, it is finished, it's paid in full, the penalty for our sins. And though I believe that he paid the sin for the entire world, only those who appropriate what he did for them by faith will experience that forgiveness. Because the bottom line is this, and I think we all know this, if you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, then you are responsible for the penalty of your own sin. To what the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. But if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you just want to make sure this morning that you know Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people who say, well, I know about Jesus. I believe He died on the cross. I know that. Yeah, that's a head belief. A lot of people have a head belief. It's an intellectual knowledge of the facts or information. But have you surrendered your heart to God? Have you really put your full trust in Him? You see, some still believe somehow, well, if I'm just good enough, if I just work hard enough and do enough good things, and then I'll merit salvation. The Bible says we can't work our way into heaven. 
It's not by our own goodness. It's not by works of righteousness in which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. Now this brings us to point number two in the second word used to describe the work of the cross, and that is the word voluntarily. Look at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, this is just a little phrase that indicates things that we know from many other texts, and that is that Jesus gave of himself willingly and voluntarily. Now, he didn't come down just to simply uh, down and die simply because it was the Father's will. Jesus gave his life for us. No one took it from him. In fact, he said that of himself in John ten seventeen and 18. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So Jesus stepped forward willingly, voluntarily, and gave himself. And let me tell you this. Those weren't the nails holding him to the cross. It was his love for you and his love for me. Because when we think of Jesus voluntarily going to the cross... What motivated him to do such a thing? It had to be love. God's love manifested in the cross. The Father's love in giving His Son and the Son's love in willingly coming to die and to suffer for our sin. Now your circumstances may from time to time get rough. And you may question, well, you know, where's my God? God really loves me, then, you know, why won't my car start, you know? God really loves me, then, then why do I have this disease? If God really loves me, then why am I, I having trouble in my marriage? If God really loves me, then, then why did this happen or that happen? So in a very tangible way, though, God demonstrates in history once and for all His love for you and I. It's the cross of Christ. The Bible says, Here not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son as a ransom for our sins. See, it's no big deal for us to say, oh, I love God. He's lovable. You know, people boast about, oh, I really love God. Big deal. The big deal is that God loves you, that God loves me. That's the big deal. That's what amazes me, that he would love uh, such sinners. So much so that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. See, understand, Jesus died willingly. He died voluntarily. He, he, you know, he didn't have to give his life. He didn't have to die. But because of his love for you, how marvelous is that love as you look to the cross demonstrating what he did for us. And so when I may feel that God doesn't love me and that God doesn't care, I can always look to the cross and know that that's not true. God gave his son for me. And that's what it says. I love you this much. Willingly, voluntarily, he laid down his life. He died vicariously. He paid the penalty for our sins. He died voluntarily. No one forced him to the cross. He went out of love for us. And finally, this brings us to our third point in the words used to describe the work of the cross. Victoriously. Victoriously. Jesus died victoriously. In that he broke the power of Satan. Listen to Colossians 2 Verse 13 through 15, what Jesus did upon the cross for us. Paul writes, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, 
having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. At the cross, Jesus squashed the principalities and powers, the satanic spirits that are at war with God. We stood guilty under God's holy law, and our disobedience enslaved us to Satan. God in Christ wiped out that guilt because God bore His own righteous penalty. We now have victory in Christ. In other words, those who believe in Jesus Christ, Satan has no more authority over their lives. He has no power, no jurisdiction over them. Now, if you've not been born again, you're not a child of God. The Bible is very clear. You're a child of the devil. You say, well, I'm not a bad person. I didn't say you were a bad person. I'm just saying, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you are a sinner in the grips of Satan. And you may still have the capacity to do good things, but the good things you're doing are not acceptable to God. In your unregenerate state, you are a child of Satan. The Bible says you must be born again. And those that have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ because of the cross and the victory of cross, Christ on the cross, not only do we have the forgiveness of our sins, we have victory over the principalities and powers through Christ. We know that they've been freed from the penalty and power of sin. We've been freed from the tyranny of the devil in our lives. Now, sadly, some believers even have a hard time believing that. Even though the Bible says, He that is born of God overcomes the wicked one. Listen, He has no power over you. Because what Jesus did on the cross, we have victory over sin, victory over death, victory over the power of the evil one. Devil and his demons has no power over you. The Bible says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You know, there are people that are so obsessed Christians with, with satanic things that, that become, can become a serious problem for them. And they seek, though, to blame everything on the devil without taking any responsibility for their own actions. Oh, it's not my fault. It, it, it's the devil, you know. And, and, and what, what he's doing in my life, they play demon, demon, who's got the demon game, you know. They have these big deliverance services, you know. And I can't seem to get out of bed in the morning. I, I know I go to bed past midnight, but it's not that. I'm, I'm plagued by the demon of laziness. People have these, these, you know, deliverance services. Oh, demon of laziness, come out. No, go to bed early and get up when you're supposed to. <laughs> Quit being lazy. You need to repent. Or the demon of Andy's frozen custard. Oh, that's it. When I see Andy's, I can't control myself. That demon just takes over. Come out, demon of banana and caramel concrete. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's you. It's you. <laughs> Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. But sadly, Christians, they want to blame it on Satan and on the devil when it's our own sinful, lustly, fleshly lust and we give in to sin. James tells us in James 1, 14 and 15, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Listen, the reason Jesus Christ went to the cross was not only to save us from hell, not only to give us victory over sin, but to give us victory over our own fleshly appetites and victory over Satan and principalities and powers, victory over death. Man, I would not want to live one day on this planet without knowing that my sins were forgiven, that I'm a child of God. 
Because then if I'm not, then I'm open game to the enemy. But to the person in Christ Jesus, Satan has no authority in your life. And all comes back to the cross. Jesus had victory at the cross. Now look at verse 51. To prove this, notice verse 51. The moment that Jesus said to the Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his spirit, which by the way is another verse indicating you know, that, he, that he gave his life voluntarily. But then we read in verse 51, at that point, when Jesus said it's finished, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Now there's some power happening here. What does it mean when it says the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom? What happened? Well, in order for us to understand that, we need to go back to see what the temple was all about. See, the nation of Israel could experience forgiveness of sin uh, one time, one day uh, each year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On that, that day, the, the, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go through a, this great ceremonial cleansing before robing himself with his high priestly garments. He would then take the blood of the bulls and, and the goats and the lambs that had been sacrificed on the altar in the courtyard, and he would walk into the holy place which was an area of the temple where the priests were allowed to be in. Now, beyond the holy place was this veil separating it from what's called the Holy of Holies. This veil was massive. It was some 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and about 10 inches thick. It was made of 72 braids, each consisting of 24 cords. The veil was so heavy that it took 300 priests just to hang it. Now, beyond this veil was the Holy of Holies. A small uh, room that only the high priest could enter in and only one day, as I said, the Day of Atonement. Inside the Holy of Holies, we know, was the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Covering the Ark was the mercy seat. And filling the Holy of Holies was the Shekinah glory of God. So one day a year, the priest, high priest went from the altar into the courtyard, into the holy place, and then through the veil into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, which sprinkled the blood and interceded on behalf of the people. Now, if the priest, high priest, was, was not properly cleansed, if he was not right with God himself, he would actually die within the Holy of Holies there. In the book of Exodus, we read that hanging from the hem of the high priest's garments were, were, were bells and pomegranates, signifying the gifts and the fruits of the Spirit. And as long as that high priest, you can hear the bells, he's going in there and, and high and ringing, you knew everything was all right. But if the bells stopped ringing, you knew there was trouble. Later years, Jewish tradition says a rope was tied around the ankle of the high priest so that if he dropped dead, he could be pulled out of the Holy of Holies, not placing anyone else's life in danger. So, this is powerful. This is awesome. In a very real sense, a terrifying moment when the high priest would enter into that Holy of Holies to intercede for the people. Now, with this in mind, could you imagine the priest outside in the holy place and they're standing there and all of a sudden, this veil rips from the top to the bottom. I mean, remember, there had been darkness for, for all over the land for, for, for three hours. Then this massive veil is being ripped from top to bottom as just a piece of paper. And suddenly, these, these priests, who had never seen inside the Holy of Holies, it's now opened up to them. They're going, oh, whoa. Massive thing that happened. Listen to what Hebrews 10, verse 17 through 22 says. Uh, this is in the New Living Translation. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, he asks, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. Now when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. 
And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. This is the new life-giving way that Christ has opened up for us through the sacred curtain by means of his death for us. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's people, let us go right into the presence of God with true hearts fully trusting him, for our evil consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Even as the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom, so the body of the Lamb of God was ripped for us. Jesus paid the price for all of our sin, rebellion, foolishness. It is finished. The work is complete. Therefore, in the New King James, we can come boldly before the presence of God. We've been cleansed by the blood. The veil has been ripped. No longer is the Holy of Holies just for a high priest once a year. Every person who put their faith and trust in Jesus Jesus Christ can enter into the presence of God. This is radical. Not only the high priest or pastor or Bible study teacher or prayer warrior or some worship leader. Everyone can come. God is saying the price has been paid. Jesus went to the cross. You know where it says that we can boldly come. It means plainness of speech. We can come to God and find help in our time of need. See, Jesus died on the cross to give us that access. But that's not all. Look what happens next. Verse 51. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Verse 52. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Talk about night of the living dead. I mean, come on. But you get what this verse is saying. Here's what's fascinating. This verse is, is not in any other gospel. It's only in the gospel of Matthew. There's no commentary given on it. No explanation given. It just simply states what happened. Now I believe it happened. 100% believe it happened because it's in God's word and I believe God's word 100%. So in addition to the veil being ripped from top to bottom, in addition to the earth quaking, in addition to the sun going out, Effectively, the dead came out of their graves and walked around town. It was an anomaly. This is sort of like a preview of coming attractions. Because the Bible says when Christ comes back, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, so shall we ever be with the Lord. But, but I mean, it would be basically a situation when you're walking around town and say, Oh, Harry, didn't we bury you two days ago? What's going on? Yeah, well... I mean, it's kind of like what's coming. You know, the dead are going to rise first. People are going to come alive again. This is radical, but it just shows us that Christ's death was victorious over death, victorious over the grave. Finally, we come to the last classic reaction to this series of these miraculous events. Verse 54 says, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now that sounds like another conversion at the cross to me. We already know the thief at the cross, one of them rather, uh, you know, this man who was an insurrectionist, a, a violent criminal, a murderer, a terrorist, if you will, he dedicated, I mean, his life to the overthrow of Rome. He came to faith being crucified next to Jesus. Now we have this, this hardened Roman soldier, this centurion, man who was there guarding Jesus. Guy had a lot of responsibility. He was probably signed to this job by Pilate himself. A man probably hardened by war. He had heard it all. He'd 
seen it all and probably done it all. He's probably recited over, over you know, hundreds of crucifixions. But I tell you, he's never seen anyone like Jesus. How brave this Jesus was as he took those beatings and assaults from his fellow soldiers. How bold this Jesus was as he did not cower in Pilate's powerful presence. How gracious this Jesus was as he asked for pardon for the ones that had done this. And now this centurion is deeply moved and he believed right there on the spot. Faith took place in his heart. You know, it's interesting that thing because what he saw in this day changed his life. It was not easy to become a centurion. I mean, these guys, they guarded, you know, they were over some 300 to 600 men. A, a man who was normally in control. But he's a, he was amazed at what he saw. And he believed. How do we know? Well, listen to Luke 23, verse 47. It says, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Like the thief on the cross, he believed to put his faith in Jesus Christ. Seeing Jesus caused him to believe. After all, didn't Jesus say in John twelve thirty two, And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So two men, who would normally be enemies of each other, a man dedicated to the violent overthrow of Rome, the thief on the cross, and a man dedicated to preserve the power of Rome, the Roman centurion, both of them became believers. Ephesians 2.14 tells us, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. You see, what Jesus did on the cross not only removes the wall of separation us from God, but it also removes the barriers that separate us from each other. Enemies can become friends at the foot of the cross. People you never thought you'd be friends with, you're going, wow, we're, we're good friends. It's great, you know? It's awesome. The Roman centurion and the man hanging on the cross both believed. Contrast that to the reaction of the others present at the cross on the same day. We'll look at verse 55 and 56. And we'll go over this a little more next time together. But verse 55. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. But listen to Luke chapter 23, verse 48. In the same situation, it says here, And when the crowd that came to see crucifixion saw all that happened, they went home in deep sorrow. Now the people that saw the sun go dark, the people that also felt the earthquake, they seen the supernatural phenomena of the day. While the centurion believed in Jesus, these people didn't seem to do much. Which just brings us down to the big choice when we have Jesus on the cross. We can look at him and live, or we can look and we can leave. The centurion looked and lived, these people looked and left. Isaiah forty five twenty two. God says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The centurion looked and lived and placed his, his faith and trust in Christ. Others looked and left. They said, oh yeah, sad day, tragic thing, really too bad it happened, just ruined our day. But there's no change in their heart. So here's a closing question. Will you look and live or will you look and leave? Effectively, we all have the same choice because before us now, the, these people had, the Roman centurion had, they all saw it. But they reacted differently. And there are those, well, you know what, I think this is all very interesting, but I don't really know if I want to do anything about it. Well, then you're looking and you're leaving. Or you can look to like the Roman centurion and say, man, I look and I believe this is truly the Son of God. 
Again, Isaiah 45, 22, God says, Look to me and you'll be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Look to me and I will forgive you of your sin. I paid the price. Listen, when we look at the awesome sacrifice that Jesus made for us, we realize you can't take Christ out of Christmas any more than you can take the cross from Christ. Jesus died vicariously. He paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus died voluntarily. No one forced him to the cross. He won out of love for us. Jesus died victoriously and he has given you victory over the power of the devil, over sin, over our flesh, over death and over the grave. Praise God for the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together, Lord. We thank you as we look to the cross, we see what was done for us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has not surrendered their heart and life to you, they've not appropriated what you've done for them, Lord, that they would see and they would look to you and they would live. They would give their life to you. They would not just just leave and say, oh, that was a nice message. I'll think about it. Lord, help them to make that decision this morning. To say, Lord, I want to be born again. I want my sin forgiven. I want to know you. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. Would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? I want to give you that opportunity. I, I think we're all believers here, but I, I, they never know. Maybe maybe you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning. You want to know that you know. Just raise your hand so I could pray for you. Father, again, we thank you. We praise you for this time. Lord, we can't help but look at the cross and be so grateful. You're our Lord, our Savior, our King our Master. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll do one last song together.